Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and this is the Analysis.News podcast. Don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. There's been a lot of debate on whether a Biden administration's foreign policy will be all that much different or all that much better than Trump's. While Biden's foreign policy is dressed up in talk of a renewed multilateralism and American, quote, leadership, his thinking is rooted in the Cold War and the need for maintaining America as the global policeman and hegemon. But will Biden at least be less reckless than Trump? How does Trump's record stack up against Biden's? Now joining us to discuss this is Medea Benjamin. She's the co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink and the co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange. She's the author of 10 books, including Drone Warfare, Killing by Remote Control, and Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. Her most recent book, Inside Iran, The Real History and Politics of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Medea and her colleagues, in my estimation, have been maybe the most tireless anti-war organizers and campaigners in the United States for years, no matter which party was in power. Thanks for joining us, Medea. Hey, nice to be on with you, Paul. Why don't you give me just an overall impression of how you compare a Biden to Trump foreign policy, and then we'll kind of dig into some of the bigger issues. Well, you brought up the term reckless, and I think that's an important one, which is Trump did a lot of jumping around and going by the gut kind of thing. And, um, you know, some thought that he was really going to make peace with North Korea and then uh, back down. There's all kinds of pressures on him to not move forward, but uh, he didn't follow through on that. Um, Talked about getting us out of these wars, but we're still in them. And he is so uh, abrasive that it was hard to know where he was going with certain things. And certainly when it comes to being part of the international community of nations, pulling us out of everything from the Paris Accord to the WHO to the uh, UNESCO, Human Rights Council, all of that. I mean, that will change when you get to Biden. But um, he touts that he didn't start us in in a new war. Uh, I wouldn't really say that because if you look at things like the uh, terrible, uh, brutal sanctions on countries like Iran and Venezuela, that's pretty much uh, economic warfare. So I don't feel like uh, Trump in any way was a peace president, as he likes to put himself forward to be. And as you said, Biden is old school. Uh, He's kind of the, um, wouldn't be all that different from Obama, which really wasn't all that different from Bush, which wasn't all that different from Trump. So uh, there is a continuity of U.S. as a warlike country that uses militarism way uh, more than diplomacy. But I think things would be, uh, you know, the, the biggest difference, Paul, in terms of a Biden administration is that we and I make that in the plurality of people who consider themselves a part of a peace movement, would have more ways to pressure a Biden administration. Let's go through some of the the different uh, sort of areas of the world. Uh, And I'm going to kind of do this uh, in order, but in in a little way out of order, because I mean, the biggest question in terms of U.S. foreign policy, obviously, is China. Uh, And I would also say the approach towards nuclear weapons. But let's start with Iran, because it's it's perhaps the most immediate 
potential dangerous uh, issue of foreign policy, especially, I think, if there's another four years of, of Trump. And, and it's probably the one thing that is the most marked difference between uh, Trump and or Bush Cheney vis-a-vis uh, -vis Obama and Biden, and which is the Iran nuclear agreement. So where do they, where, what's your assessment of that? Yes, that is the number one difference that I think would make a huge difference in the Middle East. Uh, the Biden team and Biden himself has talked about going back into the Iran deal. There's questions whether Iran has to go back into compliance first before the U.S. or it would happen somewhat simultaneously. But certainly um, there, there is a expectation that Biden would go back in the Iran deal. Things have changed, though, in Iran in these intervening four years in that the hardliners in Iran have gotten the upper hand. Rouhani, who uh, is seen as making the deal with the Americans that turned out not to bring any positive consequences for Iran, has uh, lost out in this. The last parliamentary elections in Iran have brought the uh, more conservative people into power. They're going to be presidential elections there, and it's going to be, probably be a more hardliner uh, as the head of state. And so it might not be as easy for the U.S. to just go back into the Iran nuclear deal. Um, so we've lost a lot of uh, momentum in the last four years. Let's also remember that Trump almost took us into war with Iran at the beginning of last year when uh, the a drone strike that killed Soleimani uh, was only uh, did not lead us into war because of the restrained uh, restraining of the leaders of Iran, uh, but it could have really escalated. So I think um, it will hopefully calm things down uh, if uh, Biden does rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. And that was always supposed to be step number one. You know, Paul, it wasn't the end all. It was supposed to lead to more discussions with Iran on all kinds of issues. Uh, and if that could happen, it could really have a positive effect for uh, other areas of the Middle East, like um, like Iraq and Syria and Yemen and uh, Lebanon and beyond. Yeah, as you say, the, the, the Iranians spent so much time negotiating this deal, restructure their whole nuclear program, which there's still no evidence was a nuclear weapons program. And I, I still think there's not an actual national intelligence estimate that's ever countered the one from a few years ago, which said that, in fact, there was no longer any weapons program. Right. But that said, they they, they certainly did restructure and, and, and went through all these negotiations, signed the deal, and then it doesn't mean anything because Trump just backs out of it. And as they say, you know, what's 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 the line that they don't have a reliable partner to negotiate with here? <laughs> well, that's for sure. And those who said don't trust the devil of the U.S. Uh, were right in the end because you can't trust the U.S. if it wasn't a treaty because Obama didn't go back to Congress for that, didn't think he had the votes. Didn't have the votes because people like Chuck Schumer and his own party wouldn't support it. Well, that's right. Absolutely. And so it was just uh, done by the executive agreement, which meant that Trump could come in and uh, what he did, uh, pull us out. But it does, um, it, it certainly has made 
for a very difficult four years for the Iranian people who have been suffering a lot uh, under these sanctions. Uh, Larry Wilkerson, who lobbied on on the Hill in Congress in favor of the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, said it was very nip and tuck whether there was going to be enough votes. Uh, and it took Biden's fighting on the on on the Hill. And there were some very significant votes in Congress, uh, both on, you know, in the House and in the Senate, where the Republicans tried to kill uh, the agreement because if they had uh, over 60 votes, they, they could vote to kill the deal with Iran. Biden lobbied very uh, strongly in favor of the deal. And, and that means in opposition to people like Chuck Schumer and his own party, as I said, who, who were against the deal. Uh, so to me, that so if you're going to go through positives, because there's certainly quite a few negatives on Biden, that's maybe one of the most important positives. Absolutely. I think that's a a very important one. I mean, that was the signature achievement of the Obama administration, and uh, Biden was part of that. And so I think uh, he would go back into that deal, and he he certainly saw the benefit of it back then. Uh, He's been talking a little bit harder line, you know, these days, but that's that's campaigning. So yes, I I think that is a number one positive thing that could come out of Biden administration foreign policy. And given Trump's approach to Iran and a lot of the people around him, I I, I don't believe they are going to give up on the idea of at least massive destabilization of Iran, if not still some attempt at regime change. And those two things go together. An Iranian friend of mine said what they really want in Iran is the destruction of the society as they accomplished in Iraq. Okay, so some of the other critical issues in the Middle East, uh, let's start with Yemen, because that's a war that's destroying another society in the Middle East. Uh, How do you compare where Biden and Trump are on that? Well, see, that's where I think there's another real uh, positive potential, because the past couple of years, there has been tremendous work from the grassroots, and that has been forming a coalition from left to right, from Code Pink to uh, the um, uh, Cato Institute libertarians to uh, even um, Freedom Works and and, um, some of the Koch brothers groups to try to stop the U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. And you talked about Larry Wilkerson. He worked very hard on this as well. And we got, we managed several times, actually four times, to get bills to uh, through both the House and the Senate. And that wasn't easy to do. Uh, and they got to the president's desk. And what did he do? He vetoed them. Now, I don't think a Biden administration would use the veto for that. I don't think uh, Biden would go so far as to say, well, let's stop the uh, weapon sales to the Saudis, even though he said that Saudi Arabia should be a pariah state. Um, but I do think that he would um, not block a new bill that went through Congress saying that the U.S. should not be giving the logistical support or selling the weapons that, were, that are used by the Saudis in Yemen. Uh, Trump, before the election, a couple of years before he got elected, uh, was quoted as saying, if you want to know what happened on 9-11, just go talk to the Saudis. But once he got elected, he sure didn't have any trouble. Uh, what was that famous picture of touching the globe? Yes. 
the orb, the orb, yeah, and the sword dancing, and and his first uh, voyage outside the U.S. was not to Canada, not to Mexico. It was to Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah, not kiss the ring, kiss the orb, yeah. Okay, so uh, Yemen, there could be a, a marked difference, and I have to say, each one of these things are not just items on a grocery list. So far, you know, talking about Iran and the, as you mentioned, the economic warfare against Iran, we're talking hundreds of thousands of lives and people dying. And you have a COVID crisis in Iran at a time where they can't get ventilators and the sanctions are causing, uh, you know, starvation. And the same thing, a terribly destructive war in Yemen. So the, these differences are, are just not minor issues. That's right. Catastrophic in Yemen. Uh, and especially now, with the combination of the war and the pandemic and climate change and hunger. I mean, we're talking about lots of lives being lost in Yemen. And and then the U.S. cutting aid uh, to Yemen as well. And I don't think Biden would do that. So between Iran, uh, Yemen, you're right. There are a lot of lives that could be saved uh, with the new administration. All right. So we're, we're, we'll stay roughly in the same area. And, uh, you know, we are going to get to Israel-Palestine. But before we do, uh, Trump has gotten some credit for pulling troops out of Afghanistan uh, and Syria. But let's start with Afghanistan. Uh, what do you make of that? his moves there? He uh, has been engaging in peace talks now for a year. Um, there, uh, the fighting has continued. You know, it's a catch twenty two because the Taliban say, as long as there are foreign troops, we will keep fighting. And uh, so then the peace talks do not uh, culminate in a peace agreement. And and the peace talks started. You know, for a long time they were just between the Taliban and the U.S., not between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Now they're starting with the Afghan government and there has been progress made and there, uh, but it, it hasn't been culminated. And the troops that the U.S. is withdrawing is a positive step, but there's still thousands of troops there. And the Democrats step in and say, oh, you can't pull out these troops. So uh, Trump has been stymied in pulling back on uh, in, in both Yemen, I mean, both uh, Afghanistan and in Iraq. But you know, he says that he's so great on fulfilling his promises. He promises he promised to end the endless wars and his term is ending without ending the war, either in uh, Afghanistan or in Iraq. What do you think Biden would do any differently? And, and let me just say, uh, you know, I made a film in Afghanistan and, uh, you know, followed it since. And it, it's a it's an incredibly complicated situation because the Americans created the conditions for the disaster in Afghanistan with, under Jimmy Carter and, uh, and, and then each administration afterward arming the jihadists and, uh, and creating this terrible vacuum after the uh, Soviets left and allowing close to two million people to be killed in a civil war and out of which the Taliban arose mostly under the tutelage of the Pakistani Secret Service, the ISI. Uh, so, so it's a crazy complicated situation because the, the majority of people, I believe, from having been there and talked to many, many Afghans, they do not want the Taliban back. The only thing that's happened is they're just so worn out by endless war that it's better to have some kind of peace deal than, as I say, a war that just never ends and, and, and keeps killing so many people there. And, and even on the issue of U.S. troops, uh, there is a, I think there is something to the argument that it creates somewhat of a vacuum, uh, but 
most of the Afghans I know, progressive Afghans, they do want the U.S. out, but they don't want it done as part of a deal with the Taliban. Yeah, you could say that, but the reality is the Taliban are Afghans. They live in Afghanistan. They are Afghans. Many of them uh, young people who had no way to earn a living and were offered some money and went to fight. And, you know, the people of Afghanistan have been fighting for decades now. It's uh, for many men, the only thing that they know, uh, the only jobs that they have had. And so do you just keep perpetuating this forever? Um, the, the Taliban are not going to go away. They control a lot of Afghanistan um, and they have nowhere to go. So you have to make a deal with with the Taliban. No, the, the, the people I am quoting are saying the Afghans should make deal with the Afghans. The Americans shouldn't be part of any deal. They should just get out. Oh, well, right. Yes. But you, then you said they don't want the Taliban. Yeah, but they want Afghans to settle it. They, they don't want the Taliban back in power, but they want Afghans to deal with the Taliban. They don't want the Americans to broker a situation that gives perhaps at least half the country to the Taliban. They want the Americans just to get out and then the Afghans will have to settle it. Now, I'm not sure how realistic that position is because the Afghans have, you know, I mean, the Taliban are, have such a powerful armed force and I'm not sure what happens if it doesn't just descend into a terrible civil war after that. But but they don't, the, the people I'm talk have talked to do not want the Americans to broker anything. Right. And then you, you asked, well, what would happen with a Biden administration? I think there would be more of the possibility that more troops stay for a longer time with the Biden administration. Yeah, more than likely. It's one of these situations where it's such a terrible situation that was created in the first place. The the real answer, I mean, we don't need to get into that in detail now because it's not what the, this segment's about. There needs to be some kind of regional peace conference. It can't just be up to the Americans what happens there, especially when the Americans created the mess in the first place. But at any rate, let, let's move on. Um, let, let's talk about Israel-Palestine. Do you see any difference between a Biden and Trump uh, administration on Israel-Palestine? Not anything significant. It's so interesting, Paul, you know, these new, uh, quote, peace deals that the Trump administration has been making between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and now Sudan. Biden himself has said that those are good. Um, we should talk about why um, I don't think they're good, but I don't think the Biden administration would necessarily continue on that track of pushing for more of those deals to be made. Um, but certainly I don't see a Biden administration using the $3.8 billion that U.S. taxpayers give every year to Israel as a leverage for getting Israel to uh, do anything that would improve the lives of the Palestinians. I, I really don't see him doing anything very different from what the last administrations have been doing. And uh, he talks about how what a great friend of Israel he is and that he would not condition the aid, even though other members of the other people in the primary races um, started saying they would condition the aid. Uh, he refused to do that. So I don't have uh, any positive expectations about Biden and Israel. The, this next question kind of applies to everything, but uh, particularly to Israel and Palestine. Bernie Sanders and a lot of the people associated with him and, and the progressive candidates on, on the Hill 
have taken quite a different attitude towards uh, Israel-Palestine. When it came last time to negotiating the program of the Democratic Party, Biden appointed, asked Cornell West to go and recommend him. This is not this election. This is the previous one with Hillary. And uh, and they took quite a you know, fairly strong position in terms of Palestinian having, Palestine having rights as a people, as a nation. Um, do you see any of that kind of influence of, of, of the Sanders-esque kind of approach being able to have any influence on, on, on Biden and U.S. foreign policy? Potentially. I think there will be efforts within Congress coming from uh, Democrats in Congress to move things up to the White House that would um, then put Biden in a difficult position. But I don't. Uh, so, so I think there are possibilities there. But Biden has always talked about um, being best friends with these the Israelis, and he certainly has decades of uh, support for the Israelis when he was head of the um, Foreign uh, Relations Committee in the Senate. So um, I don't think so. <laughs> and what about this, the sort of antagonism that developed between Netanyahu and Obama? I mean, was that personal or, is it, or was it more substantial that, and might that spill over to Biden? You know, I think there was uh, it was both personal and a bit substantial in that um, Biden would would uh, Netanyahu was so brazen with the uh, authorization of new settlements just at the time when uh, he was visiting the U.S. or things like that. Um, but you know, in the end, um, what did that antagonism lead to in terms of any change of U.S. policy? It didn't lead to anything. Um, so maybe there would be a PA office would open up again in the United States. Pal- Palestinian Authority. Uh, some symbolic things like that. Is, hasn't Trump more or less cut funding to the PA? Yes. And so there could be a restoration of, of some of the funds and, and cutting funding to UNRWA, to the uh, refugees, uh, Palestinian refugees. That could be something that would come back. But, you know, in terms of moving towards something that would actually lead to lifting of the siege of Gaza, uh, that would lead to uh, Palestinian equal rights, um, you know, I just don't see that happening. I, I see things around the edges which are important. Uh, for example, around the issue of uh, um, calling out the Israelis for their treatment of uh, juvenile prisoners or um, uh, uh, the um, maybe uh, pushing for uh, some uh, greater openings when it comes to the uh, aid going to Gaza. Um, and though that kind of relief is, is important, um, not saying that it's meaningless. And it used to be a sort of issue for the Americans that for the, to, to, you know, to please the Saudis, supposedly, and some of the other uh, Gulf states and so on, they couldn't be so completely one-sided pro-Israel. But if, if Trump's proven anything, it's actually the other way. He could be completely historically one-sided pro-Israel and then bring all of these uh, rich Arab states on board. So th- there won't even be any of that kind of pressure, any, even though it never amounted to that much anyway. Yeah, I mean, he did want to... Uh, get the uh, the most important of the Arab states, which was the Saudis. And I think uh, if he were to get the Saudis, there would have to be 
some concession, uh, but hopefully he'll be out of the White House and we won't see that as the route being taken. Yeah, I mean, I think the Saudis didn't play along because uh, it just wouldn't look good for them in terms of domestically to have to worry about such things. But in reality, there's all kinds of Saudi-Israeli cooperation anyway, so... Well, and of course, and that's true of uh, the, the the Emirates and Bahrain um, to call these peace deals with countries that they have not been at war with uh, is quite strange. And of course, if you um, look below, below the surface, there are weapons deals. Now, that's another thing that might be different in a Biden administration, because the issue of the weapons being sold to the Emirates will come up in Congress next year. And they are asking for F-35s as part of the um, the sweetening of the uh, of their making the deal with the Israelis, and then now the Israelis are saying, "Well, you know, we always have to have that military edge, and so you have to sell, you have to give us. We don't sell the Israelis; we give them uh, more more sophisticated weapons, and it's just a new arms race in the Middle East." And so if we can build up opposition to the uh, sale of the F-35s to the Emirates in Congress, which we are uh, starting to do, that will reach Biden's desk and it will be uh, a real uh, showdown to see can we get Biden to not veto that, meaning the U.S. would stop the sale to the Emirates, uh, not agree to more weapons weapons uh, giveaways to Israel, and, and that would be positive as well. Uh, let's talk about Iraq. Now, of course, this is the biggest strike against Biden, uh, that he voted in for the resolution that enabled the invasion of Iraq. Uh, he claims he didn't really get that it would necessarily lead to the invasion, He, but he also said it was a mistake that he voted for it. Certainly, there were lots of other people, Bernie Sanders, but also many others who understood that resolution would enable war, war and they opposed it. And Biden went along with, I suppose, mostly out of his own political opportunism. There was a lot of pressure to support the war, and he did. And then later, he says, says he's wrong. Um, I think it's a lie of Trump to say he was against the war. If you go back to what he was saying at the time, he was um, more or less for it. He wasn't, you know, made perhaps as gung ho as some others, but he certainly never came out against it. And then later, after he was uh, inaugurated, one of his first visits was to uh, uh, make up with the CIA. He went to CIA headquarters in early 2017. And he said something very interesting there, which was that uh, that. I, he says, I never thought we should have let go of the oil, that his big critique of the Iraq war was the United States didn't grab the oil. And then he says to them, he says, I, you may have a chance to do it again. Uh, and with, it sounded serious uh, that there actually could be some other attempt to grab Iraqi oil. Uh, now, that hasn't happened. Uh, but in the second term, especially if they get very provocative with Iran or actually start some kind of fight with Iran, then who knows what the hell Trump does in Iraq. Uh, but what, what's your assessment of this whole thing in terms of Biden, Trump, Iraq? Well, I do think that Trump would like to get out of Iraq. Um, he has uh, certainly talked about it a lot, and um, uh, he has 
faced the same kind of opposition he faced in trying to uh, get out of Syria, get out of um, troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, and after the Iraqi parliament voted that the U.S. should leave, um, it would have been a good time to say, okay, we're leaving. Uh, instead, he will end his term with um, thousands of U.S. troops still in Iraq and not having completed that promise either. I think when the Iraqi parliament said, we want you out, that probably made him feel like, oh, well, now we're not going to leave. <laughs> uh, and certainly the uh, comments around the uh, take the oil uh, are uh, not something that the Iraqis take very kindly to. But, you know, whatever whatever uh, Trump says, just like any other leader, we can't listen to. Uh, we have to look at what he's done. And he hasn't uh, fulfilled that promise. Yeah, I'm not so sure he wants to get out of Iraq uh, because, because of the strategy to do with Iran. Uh, that they, the, the only reason he might want to get U.S. troops out of Iraq is that so they're not such an easy target that, that if they do start a provocation from the sea and from the air, maybe they don't want American troops within missile range. Right. They don't need them on the ground. In fact, they've consolidated so much in Iraq and closed a number of the bases to not have so many uh, uh, U.S. soldiers being sitting ducks there. But I don't think uh, that that uh, Trump wants a ground war. He wants an air war. Let's go to the sort of the, the biggest question facing U.S. foreign policy, and that's China. And, and I see now on the Code Pink website, there's a campaign it's a petition addressed to Kamala Harris uh, that China is not our enemy. Um, why, why Harris? Uh, and then talk a bit about Biden, Trump vis-a-vis -vis China. Well, she has uh, she, she Asian American uh, roots, and um, we are just so disgusted about the way that Trump and Biden, in their macho threats against China, Biden calling the uh, head of China thug, um, the Trump, of course, being just horrendous in his China flu and Kung flu and trade war with China and China, China, China. Um, it's the both of them are, are terrible on this. So we thought, why not appeal to a woman in the in a critical position, somebody who is uh, has Asian roots and somebody who understands that um, this kind of rhetoric has implications at home in the repercussions against the Asian American community. So that was the, our reasoning behind appealing to Kamala Harris. So let's dig into Biden and Trump. Now, uh, Trump obviously has been as aggressive in his rhetoric towards China, I guess, as it's possible. Uh, it's racist. He blames the COVID on China and goes on and on. Um, but Biden has chimed in. And, and do you think Biden has chimed in because he just wants to take that card away from Trump in the election campaign? Or does this reflect a broader consensus that that the rival, rivalry with China is going to heat up? Uh, I know when I, we, we looked into his uh, Biden's climate plan on his website, 
There's a very interesting section dealing with the uh, how to end fossil fuel subsidies. And he says that he wants to end fossil fuel subsidies in the United States, but he's going to use pressure to force China to end fossil fuel subsidies, uh, coal and, and elsewise. Uh, and then he specifically goes after this Belt and Road Initiative of China and that alternative funding toward to the countries that have signed on to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative should be offered to break these countries away from China. And he links this to the issue of fossil fuel subsidies, which, which I don't quite get that what the heck the connection is. But it, but it's it seems this rhetoric coming from Biden is is much deeper than just trying to outshout Trump. Yes, I agree. I think that Biden uh, really believes that the U.S. should regain its role at the head of the table, meaning uh, its role in leadership of the entire world sees China as a rival. We know that it was under the Obama administration that the pivot to Asia really began. And I think uh, um, Biden follows along that line, thinks that the U.S. should strengthen its um, military uh, uh, forces in the region, um, should continue on these uh, military exercises that are a threat to China, uh, and should be um, pushing back on China as a superpower. So I don't think it's just rhetoric. I think it's for real. And I think that we will see under a Biden administration uh, this kind of beefing up of uh, the U.S. forces in the region and a, a, a new level of military buildup, which will be uh, just what the military industrial complex loves, uh, a new war and a war with a major power that will justify uh, the staggering Pentagon budget. Well, I'm not sure they want a new war with China, but they sure want a, a good old almost war. Yes. No, a new threat, uh, a cold war that continues to allow for uh, the call for, um, oh, my goodness, China has increased its budget and for its military. It's gotten uh, uh, it's advanced in, in its in its weapons. So we have to get more advanced weapons. And, uh, of course, this justifies this uh, nuclear modernization. Uh, so I think Biden is all in when it comes to seeing China as a threat. Which is so crazy, especially when it comes to the issue of climate, because if there isn't a, a collaboration and an agreements, international agreements, most importantly, including China and the United States on climate issues, uh, we're, we're kind of screwed because one of the things that happens is China doesn't take more action because the U.S. isn't. The U.S. uses China not taking action as an excuse. I mean, they're, they're, this is this is existential for human life as we know it. And this rhetoric, uh, this antagonistic rhetoric coming from Biden and Trump, but uh, Biden as well. Uh, I, how do you how after this kind of talk, how do you go and start negotiating climate agreements? Well, um, I mean, on the other hand, there have been and this has been thrown back in his face during this campaign uh, when he has said that. Rising China is a positive development, that we have to cooperate, 
Uh, there'll be areas of competition, but we do have to cooperate. So, you know, and, and there is a strong uh, uh, climate movement in the United States that can force that kind of cooperation on the climate. Uh, and then we have the issue of the, the pandemic uh, and the need to cooperate when it comes to the vaccine. And I think there will be uh, pressure to do that as well. So there will be counter pressures and hopefully that can um, that can help in terms of cooperation on the climate. And I, I guess that's a thread that will run through every issue we talk about, that at least in theory, and I, 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 I do believe it to be true to a certain extent, uh, there is a possibility of pressuring the Biden administration on these kinds of issues. The, the progressive left and so on have zero chance of influencing much of what Trump does. Well, yes, you know, during these four years, every time we do an alert, we say, well, who should we address it to? And, you know, it's it's a, it, oftentimes an issue that is decided in the White House. And yet we start laughing if we say, well, you know, address it to Trump. You know, that's just a joke. So to have a chance to address, uh, to, to fight the, the Biden administration would be a very positive thing, whether it's on China or it's on, uh, we haven't talked about Latin America at all. And I think there's going to be big movements in Latin America. I'm going to get to, but I want to do one more Middle East first. I think it's important to clear up the real history on the Libya issue. Because Trump tries to uh, posture and say that he was against the Libyan war. And it's simply not true. There's video of Trump at the time, not only not opposing uh, the invasion of Libya, but calling on the United States to take all the troops from the Middle East and send them into Libya to overthrow Gaddafi. So the idea that somehow Trump took a non-interventionist position on Libya simply isn't true. On the other hand, uh, one of the things to Biden's merit, if, if the reports are true, uh, it's it's been reported Biden opposed the war in Libya and had a fight with Hillary Clinton and Obama came down on Clinton's side, but that Biden was against that intervention. Is that what you've heard? It is. Um, on the other hand, we didn't hear Biden. Well, I guess, you know, it's, it's foreign policy has come up so little in this uh, this election um, season. It comes up so little in the debates, but you know, it would be nice to hear Biden uh, talk about how miserably that invasion turned out and how we have to stop those kinds of interventions because they uh, are worse for people than uh, a leader that might uh, that, that, that might not have been the greatest, but certainly it wasn't the U.S. job to overthrow them. Well, the, the next two big areas of the world uh, I want to talk about are the both areas which I have the lowest expectation for anything good coming out of the Biden administration. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. But let's start with Russia. The Democratic Party just has so much invested well, not just in recent uh, rhetoric about Russia, but from the end of World War II on, uh, that that I can't see them being reasonable at all. And and frankly, I know, in fact, Trump has actually uh, increased sanctions on Russia and has done some, uh, in terms of military strengthening of neighboring states and so on, has not been so pro-Russia as he's accused of been. On the other hand, it's actually, I think, to his merit that he tried to lower the uh, the, the rhetoric and the level of uh, intensity of the rivalry and so on with Russia. 
What do you think? I absolutely agree with you. I hate what the Democrats have been doing when it comes to Russia. And it's not just been uh, Biden. Uh, it's been the whole, well, many people within the Democratic Party, even progressives in the Democratic Party, have been just denouncing Trump for not coming down harder on Russia. And, you know, this issue of Russian interference in our elections, I still don't know how much is real and how much is uh, hype. But whatever it is, I don't think it's anything that has a real impact uh, on our elections. And it's certainly not something that the U.S. doesn't do all over the world. So I think the 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 Democrats have backed themselves into a corner when it comes with Russia, and it's going to be very hard for Biden uh, to get beyond that. Yeah, I've been saying all along about this Russiagate business, as it's called, um, that I've been taking somewhat similar position as you in the sense I have no idea what's real or what isn't real. But uh, I don't care because uh, whatever they did, uh, even if the Russians did everything they're accused of, which I highly doubt, but let's say they did, um, it's nothing compared what the American oligarchy does to undermine American democracy. I mean, it doesn't even come close to, to, the, to the funding issues. And- You're not even looking at what we do to undermine democracy around the world. You're saying... Well, never mind. Well, let's forget that because, you know, that that's that's like f- shooting fish in a barrel to go after that one. Uh, no, what they do to American democracy, the Russians can't come close to what the American oligarchy does. It's just it's just ridiculous. Uh, but but just for a minute, why is it only is the progressives in the Democratic Party and around it and so on that bought into this anti-Russian fervor about election meddling? Is it because they really believe that it's such a threat or it's just a partisan weapon they can use because they hate Trump so much? I don't know, but it's seeped down into a a large chunk of the American public. And I think it's very dangerous, Um, the whole anti-Russia sentiment, the uh, this this feeling that yes, don't look at our own oligarchy about how they're uh, what they do to our democracy. Let's look at the Russians. I don't know which is the answer to your question. I just know that the re- the consequences are very dangerous. I go to a lot of protests at um, in Washington D.C., and it just amazed me, Paul, to see people who were progressive on so many issues were out in front of the White House uh, 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 protesting uh, Russia and uh and, and Russian interference in our elections and uh that that uh, uh that uh, Trump was um Putin's puppet although they'd use word, worse terms than that uh and so uh, then um yeah I, 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 you don't know for the people on the top what reasons they do it but you can see the effects that it has well people on the top i get I mean, people who want to, who need what we were talking about earlier to keep defending the basic raison d'etre for having such a massive military industrial complex. And there's real competition uh, with the Russians in different areas, but very significantly in arms sales. Some really serious competition takes place globally. I mean, I get why sections of the elites, I, I, and for partisan advantage and so on and so on, I get that. But I, but for progressives to buy into this stuff, it's very dangerous to invoke the demons of the Cold War 
and use them because you think it gives you some temporary political advantage. It will come back to bite you. You, you can't unleash the uh, idiocy and uh, uh, you know, the kind of McCarthyite uh, fervor and think it's okay to use because you're using it against the Trump and, and not think that someday uh, it may help provo- uh, give some moral ideological kind of support to some real provocation against Russia. And, I, and in saying that, I'm no big defender of Putin. I'm no big defender of the Russian oligarchy. He, the, you know, he's an authoritarian. Uh, it's not very democratic in Russia, to say the least. And I think Putin does nurture the far right in Europe. But let's talk about that stuff, not, not in, in this interfering in a U.S. election, which is just to, to feed into the narrative of this, of this Cold War nonsense. Right. And then that also feeds into the issue around NATO and uh, the Democrats trying to say, and Biden in his campaign, that they would be more pro-NATO uh, than Trump has been. Trump certainly had his moment when he talked about NATO being obsolete, his moment of clarity, uh, but then turned to saying, uh, no, we want to strengthen NATO. NATO is great. The only thing that should happen is that that the Europeans should pay more uh, for uh, their military and our military. And then the Biden campaign coming back and saying, no, we're the ones who would really strengthen NATO. And uh, Trump want to t- wants to take troops out of Germany because he has a beef with Angela Merkel and we want to stop him from taking those troops out. And uh, so uh, along with the Russia threat narrative comes the need to pour money, more money into NATO, strengthen NATO, make sure U.S. troops continue to be stationed uh, around Russia's border. Uh, and so once again, we have that feeding of uh, the, the militarism. And, and, and it's going to be for making money. I don't, what is NATO supposed to do? In a million years, the Russians are not marching into Europe. It just, what, even if, what would they do with it when they got there? <laughs> you can't occupy these kinds of countries. I mean, it's insane. So it's, it's, it's like the whole picture of it as if, for, there wouldn't it wouldn't get nuclear pretty quickly and or let's say you march in and you're successful then what do you do you they couldn't even hold on to eastern europe never mind western europe i mean the thing is just nuts yeah but as you know the the these um military expenditures then have a life of their own and when you have thousands and thousands of us troops uh in places like germany then the towns around that depend on uh, the U.S. troops for their income, and they want to keep that going. And the contractors who build those facilities and maintain them want to keep that going. And it really uh, becomes not about any kind of protection anymore, any strategic uh, end. It's just about keeping what is there, there. And and uh, as you said, it's about making money. And they, they are concerned about the extent Europe becomes increasingly dependent on Russian energy exports. Uh, but so what? What does NATO do? What does NATO do about that? I mean, yeah, NATO's not going to do anything about that. <laughs> what are they going to go blow up pipelines or something? I mean, it, the whole thing is, I, I can't see what else it is about, about money making, but that's true about most of military policy. Uh, even the whole Daniel Ellsberg makes the point that there's absolutely no military rationale for ICBMs, 
intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles because all the major powers know where the other ones have them and they actually are just targets. The real deterrent, and, and it is, I guess, deterrent or, or, or threat, is missiles based on submarines because they're, they're not so easy to keep track of or to counteract. But ICBMs are very profitable, so they keep building new ICBMs. And in this new nuclear expansion modernization you're talking about, I think Obama started it. It's a trillion dollars, I think it is, over 30 years, but most of that money is going to be spent over the first 10 years of that. Uh, there's a whole new whack of ICBMs. Uh, actually, let's talk a little bit about the difference between Biden and Trump on nuclear weapons. Uh, what's your take on that? The Biden administration would be more uh, likely to go back into some of these deals that the uh, Trump administration has pulled out of. Um, and, you know, things like the Space Force that the Trump administration has started. I don't know if uh, uh, Biden sees that as ridiculous as so many people in the military do. Uh, so I think there are positive things. It would be very much like the Obama era, which is that you wouldn't, uh, as you said, you got the negotiations during the Obama era uh, around the modernization of nuclear weapons. So it's not like uh, we would be um, going going back on that. Well, uh, well, actually, let me let me say another thing to Biden's credit. I, I find it amazing I'm in a position of having to defend Biden after so many years of of, of opposing uh, him on so many questions. It's all relative, we know. <laughs> well, this one's even less than all relative. It's been reported. Maybe his last name is Kagan, something like that. He wrote a book on uh, nuclear weapons policy. And he reports that Biden was very much opposed to this uh, expansion of the nuclear weapons program, that Obama did it because he wanted the Republicans to cooperate on the anti-nuclear treaty. And the Republicans were saying, we're only going to cooperate on the treaty if you do this massive uh, modernization of nuclear weapons. And it, the report is, is that Biden told Obama, they're never going to live up to this. You don't need to make this deal because they're never going to go along with you anyway. And you're going to, we shouldn't be doing this. So if that's true, and, and I asked Wilkerson this as well, and he says he's heard it is true. And this kind of argument between Biden and Obama doesn't go public. Um, but then that's actually not a bad sign for Biden. Now that said, I, I agree with you. He's never going to reverse that kind of commitment. Well, and the other thing that's happened in the intervening uh, time is that there is now a U.N. Uh, ban on nuclear weapons, a, a U.N. Uh, peace treaty, a, a nuclear ban treaty uh, that just went into effect this week when Honduras became the 50th nation to ratify it. And that gives a lot of momentum in the United States from the grassroots to be pushing for uh, the U.S. to join that. Now, you might laugh at that at this point, um, but I think it's a, a goal that we have to have. And um, I, I would rather be pushing that under a Biden administration than under a Trump one. Well, I wouldn't laugh at it in, in that, I'm working, uh, people that listen to the analysis, I've mentioned this before, I'm working on a documentary based on Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg's book, Doomsday Machine, and I'm getting into this topic somewhat. And most of the people that know military affairs, that know nuclear issues, uh, that really pay attention to this. Um, they don't think it's a question of if there's going to be an accidental nuclear war and maybe 
a, a somewhat intentional, uh, something conventional that spirals out of control. They think it's only a question of when, uh, especially on the accidental side. Uh, they think you know, it could be tomorrow. This is not an abstraction. And the uh, extent to which I think many of us, and I include, include myself and still, until I started talking to Ellsberg, you know, we're not pandemic deniers and we're not uh, climate crisis deniers, but many of us are nuclear war deniers. We don't take how seriously this threat is. Well, yes. And, and when I said uh, don't laugh about it, I'm saying because of the uh, massive money that is made in the development of nuclear weapons and the modernization of these nuclear weapons and uh, the fact that there is this 30-year span that we have already said that we're allocating a, a trillion dollars to, to go against that and get the U.S. to sign a ban on nuclear weapons is going against major forces of companies that the, the, the big weapons makers are the same ones, whether it's nuclear weapons or non-nuclear weapons, uh, and they have tremendous influence in our government. Well, Ellsberg argues, well, a ban would be good. We shouldn't argue or make that the main issue right now. He just thinks it's so unwinnable. Um, but there should be a massive reduction, like massive. Uh, you know, the actual number of nuclear weapons that are needed to be a deterrent is probably less than 20. And, and we're talking thousands now in, in the U.S. and in Russia. China, which has limited, uh, uh, from what I've been told by people who know these things, uh, probably to around 200, but apparently now we're talking about a big expansion of their nuclear weapons program, and partly because of how unhinged Trump has been and and how much more threatened they feel by uh, something crazy happening. Um, so uh, th this really does need to get way more on everybody's front burner, if you will, the issue of nuclear. But we're, we're kind of running out of time. So before we do, uh, let's talk about Latin America. Uh do you see a difference there? Uh, you have uh, the socialists have come back to power in Bolivia. Uh, Trump was unsuccessful, even with Elliot Abrams, the Darth Vader of Latin America. Uh, we're not able to bring down the Venezuelan government yet. Um, but do you see a, a, a difference with Biden? His rhetoric has not been certainly any better. Well, I think Biden... Um would not put the military option on the table when it comes to Venezuela. Uh, it's going to be hard to get him to lift some of those sanctions because he's gotten in bed with a lot of the uh, Venezuelan Americans and the Cuban Americans in Florida. Um, I do think we would have more luck on Cuba because that's reverting back to the Obama uh, years and the success there in terms of reestablishing relations with Cuba. So I think that could happen. I think there's going to be more changes in Latin America. We have uh, elections coming up in Ecuador, this just a uh, great uh, victory in Chile for rewriting their constitution. Um, perhaps we are on the verge of another uh, what they called the pink tide in Latin America, progressive governments coming to power. And I think 
that it's better to have a Biden administration in there than a Trump administration because you get the evils like uh, Elliot Abrams. Um, and uh, we, we, we circle back, Paul, to where we began and, and mentioned several times in this conversation about uh, we need to have more of a movement in the United States that pushes for change of U.S. foreign policy. And when it comes to Latin America, we're trying to build momentum for a new good neighbor policy based on non-intervention, respect for sovereignty. And I think uh, that we will have a better chance of building something like that up under a Biden administration or or getting some uh, effective changes in U.S. policy under a Biden administration. Yeah. And it all, I think, does come down to what you just said, uh, which is, is there going to be a real movement both on domestic issues and foreign policy issues that really needs to be a popular front and a real serious mass movement? And when it comes to that, I mean, there is some... Uh, positive developments in terms of uniting groups that work on individual countries in Latin America. And then there's all the immigration issues that affect so much all of Central America and Mexico. And uh, we have made some good gains in the last couple of years of uniting domestic and international issues when it comes to things like uh, the defund the police, defund the Pentagon, or the uh, questions around climate change at home, and you can't separate them from climate issues internationally, uh, and the issue of racism at home and racism in terms of U.S. policies overseas. So we do have, I think, the beginnings of uh, a positive uh, way to build up a movement that's not just considered people who work on peace issues, but who work on these social justice and climate issues as well. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Medea. Nice to be on with you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. And again, don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. page. 